Let's turn in God's word to the gospel according to Luke. Luke 7, and we're reading from verse 18. John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, of course, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. There's no pleasing some people, is there? Have you encountered that? That there are some people, no matter what you do for them, it seems they're never satisfied, it's never quite right, it should have been more or different, or there's something wrong with it, and you think there's no pleasing you. Temptation, of course, after a while is just to 
give up and not try uh, to please them. I'm sure we've all encountered that, and I'm sure none of us fall into that category ourselves. But for some, no matter what is done, it's never really right. And that, of course, applies in the spiritual realm as much as it does in every other area of light, of life. Here's one Christian, for example, lives a very frugal life, very little involved in the world, keeps themselves apart very carefully. Oh, well, they're written off as cold, as self-righteous, people who think they're better than everybody else. And then here's another Christian, perhaps very involved in different areas of life, part of society, very open to others. Oh, well, there's one who's no better than anybody else. It seems no matter what kind of lifestyle a Christian lives, people aren't satisfied. They will write it off for one reason or another. There's no pleasing them. That's interesting that we see exactly that same thing with regard to John the Baptist and Jesus, two very different men, two different kinds, different styles of ministry. Yet in the passage we're going to look at today, you see uh, that as far as most people were concerned, neither of them was heard uh, in faith. Turning to Luke 7, and we're looking at verses 18 to 35. John and Jesus compared. John and Jesus compared. Two things that we see in uh, these verses, and the first is John's question answered. John's question answered. And as we think about this, first of all, we need to consider John's struggle. Because we do, in these verses, see a man who was going through a very testing time. Remember, John at this point is in prison. And that was the result of his courageous and his faithful ministry. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 19, we're told there just very briefly, John rebuked Herod because of Herodias, his brother's wife. And John had taken a very clear, a very courageous stand against the immorality of Herod. That was characteristic of the whole family. Uh, They were a thoroughly evil connection. And in this case, Herodias had left uh, Herod's brother. She now was uh, with Herod. Couldn't say she was married to him. Uh, And, of course, the whole episode of the daughter dancing and so forth. That, That was characteristic of the Herods. That's the kind of people they were. But John had spoken out very courageously about that sin, and he ended up in prison, suffering for his faithful witness. Herod locked him up in prison, we're told in chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, And we know, of course, in the light uh, of the later record that that was going to lead to death. John wasn't going to be released from prison. Uh, John, of course, is still able to have contact with his disciples. That's evident in verse 18. Uh, And that would reflect how prisons worked in those days. It would be the relatives more than likely he would bring any 
supplies and any food even perhaps to the prisoners. If you didn't have any, you were in serious trouble. So John's disciples are are caring for him. They're still in contact. And John sends two of those disciples to Jesus. And he sends them with a strange question that strikes you as, as strange as you read it. Verse 19, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Unusual question. We might not have expected John to be asking something like that. It's regarding Jesus' messianic identity. That's clear. He is really saying, are you the Messiah or is there someone else? Why? It's John asking that question. Here is John who, when he was free and preaching, according to John 1.29, identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You say there couldn't be a clearer testimony to Jesus' messianic identity than that. And now here is John saying, are you the Messiah? He seems so convinced. And now he's wondering. How do we explain that? What's going on? Well, I think we can disregard the suggestion of some. J.C. Ryle, good godly commentator. But Ryle suggests John just did that for the sake of the disciples, that they would go and ask the question and receive a testimony from Jesus. And John didn't have any doubts himself. There's no suggestion in the passage that that's the case. It is John's genuine question. He wants to know. And perhaps it reflects John's hard circumstances at this point, discouraged. He's there in prison. He may well have a good idea where this is going to end. This is what his ministry has cost him. And John's human. He's not some kind of superman. And you could well imagine why, languishing in prison, doubts begin to arise in his mind. Is is Jesus really the Messiah? Was I right when I said that? And of course, uh, you know it, and it can happen as you go through hard experiences uh, in life. It can raise spiritual questions in your mind. You can find yourself doubting things about the Christian faith that You never doubted before, just from the pressure of circumstances. And it may be, in John's case, that's what was happening. Maybe, too, John is puzzled by Jesus' ministry. There's certainly good news in Jesus' preaching. But perhaps John was wondering, where is the judgment that was mentioned in the Old Testament prophets, where the enemies of God being swept away by the wrath of the Almighty. I don't see that, but the prophets said it would happen. Where, in the language of Isaiah 61, where is the day of vengeance of our God? And as John sat and thought, it wasn't happening. And so John's wondering Is prophecy really being fulfilled? Part of it seems to be missing. The enemies of Israel are not destroyed. The Romans are still in power. 
And perhaps John's wondering, what is wrong? Why is this not happening? And perhaps an element of disappointment in the results of the Messiah's ministry. Why are the enemies of God still so powerful? And perhaps all of those elements are there in John's question. Discouragement, puzzlement, disappointment. We might well understand for a man in those circumstances, it isn't entirely surprising that that a question like that should arise. John struggled. But then secondly, we see Jesus' signs. Jesus' signs. Because this really is the answer to John's question. And Jesus is very gentle with John, isn't he? There's no direct rebuke. Uh, There is no word about John's lack of faith. Jesus doesn't speak in those terms at all. What he does is to continue performing his miracles. At that very time, we are told, verse 21, Jesus cured many. And I think we're intended to see here uh, that these miracles are a deliberate answer to John's question. The disciples are to observe what Jesus is doing, and this will give the answer to what John is concerned about. And the Savior says to them, verse 25, report to John what you have seen and heard. Well, what had they seen and heard? Well, we're given a a, a list of the kinds of miracles. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who've leprosy are cured, the deaf hear. Leading up even to the dead are raised. Well, that has happened, it would seem, very recently. The raising of the the young man at Nain. Mighty miracles. Uh, And even more significant, the good news is preached to the poor. Actions and words of Jesus that are very clearly fulfilling messianic prophecy. And the disciples are witnesses to that fulfillment there before their very eyes. Most obviously the prophecies of Isaiah 61. The passage that Jesus read, you remember, in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he shocked the people that day when he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And there are many passages in the prophets like that. We could quote a huge number of them. Isaiah 35, 5, the blind have their eyes opened. The ears of the deaf are unstopped. So all of that was there in prophecy. All of those were to be signs of the arrival of the Messiah. And John's disciples have seen that and they have heard that and they're to report back to John in prison. Here are signs of the Messiah's identity. So what is that identity? What do those signs tell us? What were they designed to tell John? Well, we see the Messiah very clearly as the transformer of broken lives. 
Think of the blind, the, the lame, the deaf. Right up as far as the dead. He transforms broken lives. And above all, as Messiah, he gives the salvation from sin that is the key to every other blessing. Giving sight, giving hearing, raising the dead even, were not ends in themselves. They were pointers to something even greater and more wonderful that Jesus was able to do. He is able to give salvation, new life in the kingdom of God. And every healing, every miracle that Jesus performed was a sign that that was the case. They were pointers to who he was. The Messiah truly had come. And so the Savior says to John's disciples, he says to John, he says to us, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And there's a challenge Challenge to John, to his disciples, and to us today. A challenge to be committed to Jesus as he truly is. Not as we might imagine him to be. You hear people sometimes say, I like to think of Jesus as this or that. But that's not important. It's who Jesus really is. And what he's really come to do. And do you trust in him as the Messiah who changes lives? Not simply materially, though he does that. But spiritually as he gives the gift of salvation. Have you received it? Have you trusted in the Messiah as he really is? As he's revealed in scripture. John's question answered. But then Jesus begins to talk more about the ministry of John the Baptist. And so secondly, we see in our passage, John's ministry affirmed. John's ministry affirmed. And the Savior's taking this opportunity as people are listening to his teaching and they're standing around as Jesus performs the miracles and talks to John's disciples. They, they know what's happening. And so here's an opportunity for the Savior, as we read verse 24, to speak to the crowd about John, to clarify how they think about John the Baptist and also how they think about Jesus himself. And there are several things that are significant in the Savior's words. We have, first of all, false expectations. False expectations. What people think about John, because he did pose questions, he puzzled them, trying to figure out this strange figure and the camel's hair clothing and the, uh, the, the Spartan diet, very like an Old Testament prophet. And Jesus asks the crowd, what did you go out into the desert to see? When you went out where John was baptizing, what did you expect? 
What sort of man were you looking for? That's a crucial question. What was their understanding of John? Jesus offers suggestions. Well, a reed swayed by the wind, was that what you were looking for? Uh, Well, clearly not. Reed bending in all directions when the wind blew. Well, that certainly was not John the Baptist. He was a man who wouldn't bend for anybody. Not even Herod, who had the power of life and death over him. So he's not a reed swayed by the wind. John, there languishing in prison, clearly was not a man to bend to any wind. Or another suggestion, a man dressed in fine clothes. Somebody who was fond of soft living. Well, you could imagine people smiling at, at that. They knew John. Uh, if there ever was someone who was not fond of soft living, it was John the Baptist. He was a tough man in every sense, physically and spiritually. No, as Jesus says, uh, somebody... He likes the fine clothes and the good food. Go to palaces to look for them. So what might they have been looking for? A prophet. Well, indeed, many who were going out did think of John as a prophet, or at least thought he might be a prophet. His very appearance and demeanor said, prophet. Well, yes, in some ways, like an Old Testament prophet, and Jesus says, yes. But he doesn't stop there. And more than a prophet. Not just one more in the sequence of prophets, the Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, but more than a prophet. Yes, a prophet was expected before the coming of the Messiah. There were scriptures in the Old Testament that said there will be a prophet who will come before the Messiah arrives. But they didn't really see him as more than a prophet. That is the difficulty. What did they do with John's preaching? Often they responded and were baptized, but were their hearts changed? Did they give attention to his preaching? And especially, of course, uh, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the experts of the law, hardened in their sin. They may have listened to John, but they were not accepting his message. And revelation from God through John required a believing response And that's where the crowd so often fell short. At best, they expected a prophet, but not one who was more than a prophet, and their ears were not really open to John's message. False expectations. But then secondly, fulfilled prophecy. John's role certainly did fulfill the hopes the visions of the Old Testament prophets. This is the one, Jesus says, this is the one expected to come and prepare the way for uh, the Messiah. He fulfilled the prophecy, for example, of Malachi 3 and verse 1. I will send my messenger ahead of you 
Here's one preparing for the Messiah's coming. And John himself knew that. That is how John understood his ministry. Remember back in John 1.23, he quoted Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and he knew he was the voice crying in the wilderness. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. But he is not himself the Messiah. And it was put to him. Are you the Messiah? No, no, he said. He denied it vehemently, immediately. He's not the Messiah. He knew that. John, in a a sense, is really a kind of bridge between the Old and the New, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John is the, the culmination, the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy. But it's in Jesus that the finality comes. Not in John. John is not the goal or the end point. Jesus is. To stop short in any sense of Jesus is to miss the point of John's ministry. It's not to give attention to his preaching. We must go on to Jesus. Because it is through Jesus the Messiah uh, that sinners like you and me enter the kingdom of God. John couldn't admit anybody to God's kingdom any more than any preacher can. I certainly can't. It's Messiah Jesus who gives entry to the kingdom. And that is why uh, the Lord Jesus says, among those born of woman, There is no one greater than John yet, and this is striking, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That is a very striking statement that Jesus makes. He is telling us, in effect, that John marked the end of the old up to the coming of the Messiah. Now the Messiah has come. We enter the kingdom. And we are greater than John. Greater in what sense? Greater in our privileges. Greater in our blessings. Because Jesus is here. John could look forward to the Messiah. He, he, he witnessed the beginning of the Messiah's ministry. But we have the whole gospel record of what Jesus said and did. And so in that sense, greater than John. What a privilege. We live in the age of fulfillment. Our privileges are greater than any Old Testament saint, even than John the Baptist. Now John, now in glory, of course, understands fully and has all the blessings of a child of God in heaven. But we here on earth today as God's people, by God's grace in his kingdom, are greater than John. The privileges and the blessings we enjoy. Do you understand how much the Lord has done for you? Do you grasp the blessedness 
of now being in the kingdom after the Messiah has lived and died and risen again, seated in glory today. Do you understand the privileges the Lord has given you that the Savior could say the least in the kingdom now is greater than John? Doesn't that humble us to think God should give us such wonderful privileges and blessings entirely undeserved, all of grace. False expectations, fulfilled prophecy, and finally fickle crowds. Fickle crowds. Yes, there was a degree of positive response to John's ministry. People did respond. They went out in large numbers. Many were baptized And we're told all the people acknowledged God's way was right. There was certainly a respect for John, a willingness to listen to him. But of course, for many, it stopped short of faith in the Messiah to whom John bore witness. And in particular, sadly, tragically, the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Here were the men who knew those prophetic scriptures off by heart. If you had started a Pharisee off with a few words of Isaiah 60, he could have quoted the whole chapter to you. Vast tracts in their heads, but not in their hearts. And so they were hardened in their sins, refused to repent wouldn't even receive the baptism of John, hardened in self-righteousness and eventually would lead the crowd to cry, crucify him, as far as the Messiah was concerned. And so Jesus probes beneath the surface, not just the outward response even of the crowds that that seemed to be so uh, supportive of John. This generation that Jesus describes them there at verse 31. What was their response? What was their response to John? And what was their response going to be to Jesus? And Jesus, verse 32, uses the vivid language of a children's game. The children are sitting in the marketplace, and one group clearly are playing a flute. Nobody bothers. Okay, they'll sing a sad song. Nobody bothers. They won't dance for the flute. They won't cry for the, uh, the, la- the lament. You can't please them. Doesn't matter what you do. And Jesus says that's exactly what this generation is like. Spiritually speaking, you can't please them. John the Baptist comes. Austere life. Spartan diet. Oh, he's a demon people will say. Jesus comes very different. He eats and drinks. He goes to meals in the homes of people. And what do they say of him? Well, the son of man's a, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John, we might say, is too tight for them. Jesus is too liberal for them. 
You can't please them. And nobody could because the root of the matter is their hearts. Their hearts are hardened against God and God's word. And whether it's John, austere John, who's preaching it, or Jesus, much more involved in everyday life and society, if he preaches it, they still don't want to hear. He can't please them. And that is the reality. Unless the grace of God touches the heart and changes a sinner, then they're not listening to God's word, whatever style it may be preached, in whatever way it is offered. I know we're living in a day, of course, where increasingly churches are desperate to get people in and they'll try everything and we'll try this method and that method and we'll copy the world and we'll do it this way and that'll get people to listen and become Christians. And actually the same principle still applies. You can play your flute, you can sing your dirge and apart from the grace of God, they will not listen. You can't please them apart from the mighty work of the Spirit of God in a sinner's heart. Praise the Lord, of course. He does save many. And he does change sinners. We wouldn't be here if that were not the case. But apart from God's grace, you can't please them. And you won't please them. Whatever way we present the gospel, whatever style of ministry we adopt, Eyes need to be opened. Deaf ears need to hear. Not bodily eyes and ears, but spiritual eyes and ears. And then sinners will respond. Wisdom is proved right by all her children, Jesus says. Godly wisdom sees the Lord at work. When our eyes are opened and you see in Jesus Something and someone you never saw before. And you put your trust in him for salvation. And so we're not to despair when we think you can't please people. When God works, men and women are transformed. And sinners are saved. And all the glory belongs not to us but to the Lord. John, the greatest, as it were, of the old, by grace now, in the new, we are greater in privileges and blessings, and all the glory belongs to the Lord. Do not stop short of putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. There is no other road to the kingdom, there's no other road to the blessedness of salvation than faith in Jesus Christ. May our hope and trust be in him alone.